Okay, hello and welcome to this week's Test Podcast. I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Will Hazel. Hi, Will. Hello. Helen Ward. Hi, Helen. Hi. And Ed Doll. Hi, Ed. Bonjour. So this week um, we've had a big set of data which puts England's teaching profession in an international context when we look at things like workload, teacher shortages, even the age of head teachers and so on. Um, now, Helen, I know you've been crunching the data and you, you've been to the, the press conference today for the big unveiling. Yeah. Um, what are the headlines? So this is the Teaching and Learning International Survey, also known as TALIS, in fact only known as TALIS, <laughs> from the OECD. And uh, yeah, the big headline um, for England um, was that we we work a lot, which will come as no surprise, <laughs> I'm sure, to yeah. <laughs> the people who listen to this. And the teachers are working a lot. When I say we, we are talking teachers in England throughout yeah. my we uh, kind of note. So, yeah, Japan, Kazakhstan, Alberta, Canada do more hours, but England 46.9 hours a week on average secondary teachers are doing, which is obviously the highest in Europe. Um, it's very similar to the last TALIS survey in 2013. But even crept up slightly, uh, is that right? Slightly more, yeah. I mean, the main reason, obviously, is that we, we, it hasn't come down. Um, and the other thing that was interesting was that the actual time spent teaching in the classroom was about 20 hours a week, which is very similar to the OECD average. So it's not teaching, it's other things. Right. As they were talking this morning, the grey bar... They, they weren't quite sure what we were doing in this country, but they knew that we were doing an awful lot of it. But it probably wasn't the stuff that teachers went into teaching to do, no? though. 26 no. hours of the grey bar as opposed to 20 hours of teaching. Yeah, well, I mean. yeah, it was slightly, but yeah, yeah. So, and I think um, there was some other kind of, as you say, there is hundreds of pages. Of and this is just volume one. There is another volume coming out oh, in great. March. So... Oh, you lucky, <laughs> lucky reporter you so, uh, so there is a lot to find out about. But obviously this feeds into some of the other findings, which um, that when they asked head teachers, what is the thing that has an impact, neg- what has an impact, negative impact on teaching and learning? What's holding you back from improving mm. teaching and learning? And 37.6% of secondary school leaders said it was a shortage of qualified teachers. And obviously it's a podcast, so you can't see it, but at the press conference this morning, it was a very, very dramatic, long red line, kind of, for all the other countries on average. You know, there were lots of bits and pieces here and there. I think support staff is an issue in other countries, not so much here. Okay. But qualified teachers, yeah, we were way ahead in that. That's the recruitment and retention crisis. Yeah, and what, what was also very interesting is for the first time this time, they asked teachers what they would, if they had extra money, if the education buddy had ex- education budget had extra money and they were the ones in charge of spending it, what would they do? And their number one priority was to recruit more teachers to reduce class sizes. Right. So obviously, you know, um, Andrea Schleicher was saying this morning it's very difficult to know if there is a teacher shortage because how would you measure it objectively across different countries of vacancy rates and you know but there obviously is a big big perception uh, as as the OECD ha- can put it that yeah head teachers feel there's not enough teachers teachers in the classroom feel there's not enough teachers teachers are working very long hours they're not teaching very long hours they're doing lots of extra work at very long hours and um, I think these things the government has been aware of for some while and has been putting things in to tackle them. Yes, they have, haven't they? Whether they are going fast <laughs> enough. I wrote know. in a, I wrote in today's leader. Are we coming out on Friday. Yep. Yeah. In today's leader in the TES, Tez, 
um, that uh, I'd pointed out that the last time they ran the talent survey was five years ago. And uh, that was when Nikki Morgan, remember her, was Education Secretary, and she launched to much fanfare the Workload Challenge. Thousands of <laughs> teachers and organisations told the department, inundated the department with their advice for reducing workload. Thousands of, uh, thousands of, probably hundreds of thousands of civil service man hours went into it. Mm. Millions of pounds were spent. And, and to be fair, workload has got more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it worked. <laughs> it certainly has. Workload has in fact gone up. Which begs the question, <laughs> was it completely pointless? Or would it have gone up even more if it weren't for the workload crisis? Because you talk to heads around the country and they are doing their level best to reduce workload. Mm. I, I don't think there's any doubt that heads and their um, representative organisations are working on this. But the problem is, it's just so complicated. Yeah, it's so, just uh, so complicated. Well, something that Damien Hines, I mean, he, he wrote for our website this week, the Education Secretary, yeah, and he, he frankly acknowledged that teachers are working too long, which he has said before. Um, to be fair, I mean, he announced obviously the recruitment and retention strategy back in January, which yep. um, I think most people who read it, sadly including me, would say was a pretty good document, and did actually try and get you know really under the under the bonnet into the nuts and bolts of of this problem. But my kind of general sense is that if that has an impact, or indeed anything has an impact, it just takes a long time. I mean, a really, really long time. Um, so I think. Helen and I will be sitting here, not one talus, but two taluses from now. <laughs> I think. I think also <laughs> on this podcast, dear listener, working out if Heinz had any impact. I think. Uh, I think one of the things which is not so much something that you can, you know, kind of implement, but ne needs to happen. I think in order to try and solve this problem is a, a change to trust teachers more. I mean, this is what Andrea Schleicher was saying in the Ford report. He was saying that. If you want to make teaching attractive and get the best people in and get more people in, you need to make it more intellectually attractive, which means you need to trust those professionals. You need to yep. give them more power over their workload. And I think the current accountability system, albeit it is now slightly changing with the, the moves away from using the data to kind of for schools that are struggling, might help towards that. But I think it is a it is a s issue here. I don't, you don't want to always talk about Finland, but that is one of the mm. things that people know about Finland is that people have a lot more trust in their teachers. And here, I'm not sure I'd agree with you about Finland, but I agree that workload is a symptom. Yeah, it's because it's problem. an accountability culture. Yeah. It kind of comes around, and that's more of a kind of kind of shift we'll have to make. I think if we're going so to, see, I never thought of it before, deep. but um, yeah, we say we want teachers teaching to be more intellectually fulfilling as a career, uh, and that that would reduce workload would it do you think i, I think uh, part of the issue is i mean surely I you, think you, you'd have more time to be designing to be, your there is something to be said for actively attempting to reduce workload but actually i think part of the problem with recruitment and retention this moves it slightly beyond the headline times mm. figure is is the workload worthwhile Yes. Mm. Is, yep. is the yep. sense, I mean, people work really long hours all over the place. I mean, teachers do work bloody hard, but lots of people work really hard. People generally, I mean, this is a very pejorative statement, but people generally don't mind working very hard if they feel like the work they're doing is valuable. Yeah. 
that's how we get you lot, the reporters, <laughs> chance, to work the hours that you keep. It's <laughs> also worthwhile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you go into teaching to do the teaching and then yeah, you spend all yeah. your time doing and, and other things. If, if it's in a curriculum design or um, subject enhancement or whatever around your teaching, then I imagine a lot of teachers would get on board with that. I mean, obviously, they should work less hours, I hasten to add. But, you yep. know, if the extra hours you kept were keeping were kind of focused on teaching and being a better teacher and subject enhancement and all this stuff, then I, I just think it would feel mm. yeah, not great. Less, but yeah, less tiring and less stressful. That the, I mean, you would have more, less workload if you had more teachers. Yeah. So, well, this is also true. So you need to get people in. And Andreas had this fantastic quote in his voice saying... But if you if perpetuating a prescriptive model of teaching will not produce creative teachers, those trained only to reheat pre-cooked hamburgers are unlikely to become master chefs. And you're not going to be attracting all those people who want to be master chefs into teaching if you're just saying, well, this is the job, you have to do this, and then we're, you have to prove that you've done it, and then we're going to check up that you've done it, and you have to do it in the... And that kind of just puts people off. And He's such a prog, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can hear certain Academy Trusts screaming into their <laughs> podcast <laughs> microphones here and saying, bah, 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 bah. including Nick Gibb. <laughs> including Nick Gibb. Um, Helen, so that, that's the doom and gloom. Any, bits, any rays of sunshine yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, I think positive news? The, uh, the vast majority of teachers go into teaching because they do want to influence society and, and give back. So it's not a kind of, they ask people, are you going into it just for a reliable income or because it's just job security? But no, I mean, the vast majority of people um, across the world, but particularly in England, um, you are asking about um, uh, the age, which you can, you can kind of see either way. The average age of teachers is 39 years old in England, which is, is pretty low uh, compared to the national average. I think, I think the international average is 44. Yeah, the international average. So... Um, but the head teachers, for example, uh, only six percent of head teachers in this country are sixty or above. With OECD averages, twenty percent. That's quite striking, isn't it? Yeah. So, so, so does, that, does that mean we've got we've got less experienced heads? Or we or have. Le- you can argue either way. You think well, we've got less experienced teachers, but on the other hand, other people are saying well, the countries where you've got really high average ages have got a different problem of people kind of a lot of people retiring and not getting young people in. At least it is. You know, we mm. have got people coming in, and so um, and yeah, and. We have, as people will know, England is a particularly diverse nation. You have quite a lot of schools where you've got a lot of children with different languages or from different, um, who have come from different countries with different languages or have um, the same language but have different cultural backgrounds. And um, teachers here feel that they can cope pretty well with that. They're quite confident about working in multicultural and diverse classrooms. Um, so these are all kind of good positive things, positive things that it's found. Good. Okay. Uh, now moving on, um, Will uh, the magazine this week? Um, you've been writing about uh, an issue you've been writing about for a couple of years now, mm. doing a hell of a lot of work on, and it's this this issue of so-called peer-on-peer abuse. Yes. So this is quite a wide-ranging term, which encompasses a spectrum of different things, but it's essentially incidents of um, sexual assault. Um, exploitative relationships, um, abuse, rape, where both the perpetrator and the victim are both children or young people. And as you said, we've been writing about it for a couple of years now. Um, and we, uh, as a magazine, have been highlighting cases where schools um, don't deal with these incidents very 
well. This is where, where both are pupils at the same school. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And we first started reporting on this um, back in 2017, and we highlighted that there were cases where students who had made an allegation of rape against a fellow student uh, ended up being put back in the same class as that individual um, after they'd kind of raised those concerns, which is obviously very traumatising for, for those individuals. And we've been writing about it for a long time. Um, and what we've sort of done with this feature is try to, because I think it's really important that we shouldn't um, underestimate how difficult these cases can be for schools. They're incredibly complex. Schools have, a, of course, they have a responsibility to a, a victim um, mm. in these cases and they have to look after their welfare. But obviously uh, they have um, responsibilities to the the other child, the, the alleged sort of offender. And obviously schools aren't, uh, they're not the police. Um, some of these cases will obviously require referral to the police. Mm. But uh, the, the, the ability of schools to get to the bottom of exactly what has happened, um, that shouldn't be uh, underestimated just how difficult that can sometimes be. Um, but I think we were keen to do a piece which could give a bit of um, direction to to schools and so it wasn't a kind of council of despair. Yeah. Um, and so I've spoken to some people who work in the sector who've kind of got suggestions about things which school schools can do when they're confronted by these horrific kind of cases because it, it must be incredibly, it's obviously terrible for uh, young people involved but it's very uh, difficult for the, the teachers who kind of have to deal with these cases as well and I imagine if I was a teacher it would be probably one, one of the things I'd most kind of um, worry about was having to deal with something like this because you know you're dealing with a really um, it's obviously incredibly important to the, the individuals in this case that they're dealt with in a caring and appropriate manner um, so yeah, we've got we've got some recommendations about some things which which schools can do. Now I know there was, there was one thing that came up was the idea that um, schools in this situation should have a, some kind of safety plan. Mm. Can you say a bit yeah. about, about what that yeah. could be and, and and how they should sort of, I guess work with the victims and their yeah. families to yeah. create it? So we've got um, we've got something in this piece actually uh, kind of ten points from a uh, a law firm which does a lot of work in this area basic things to kind of be mindful of um, in these incidents and as you said in some cases where an allegation has been made by one student about another student um, it's possible that sort of in, in some cases it might be actually appropriate um, for that student who is who has allegations against them to potentially be kind of educated off-site but sometimes either that's not possible or sometimes it's more appropriate to have both the victim and the perpetrator in the school but to manage them and their movements around the school to ensure they don't come into contact with each other because um, obviously that could be very distressing for the victim. Um, obviously there's the, the kind of whole premise of um, and principle of innocent until proven guilty as well mm. so it could be difficult for uh, a, a child who's got these allegations against them. So yeah, they need to in, in, implement something called a, a safety plan, which is basically just ensuring that they don't come into contact with each other, um, that uh, they're not 
um, bumping into each other around school. So it's quite they, so they, I mean, d detailed time planning. Yeah, it must and, be. I to think look at the geography of the school. Absolutely. And, uh, so it, it's the, we're not in any way saying that this is a straightforward thing for schools to do. It, it is, I think, very, very challenging. But it's something which, unfortunately, schools have to do these days. And, and it's quite difficult to get exact data on whether these incidents are increasing, partly because the data is just so poorly collected. But most of the teachers we speak to seem to think that it is on the rise. So I think if, it, if this isn't on schools' radars now, then it, it probably should be. Well, it, it absolutely should be. Yeah. It, 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 it was a really brilliant article, and um, the work you've done on this one has been um, really, really impressive. Yeah. I'd say a bit scary. Very scary. I mean, there's also this idea that actually this could become more pressing in the future. So, so when um, relationships and sex education become mm. compulsory, the idea that, that, that teaching this could actually trigger more dis people to disclose instances yes, like this. So, yeah. so this raising is yeah. more important than ever. Yeah, and, and that's I spoke to someone from the NSPCC who said when schools, and lots of schools will be doing this already, teaching about things like consent and what's a, an appropriate relationship and what's a healthy relationship. And obviously when some of these things, when schools are teaching some of these things, they, they should expect potentially you know, young people have been affected to disclose. But again, I think it's good to always end on a positive note. And one of the things which I think is positive is most people I speak to seem to think that the fact that we're now going to have compulsory sex and relationships education, they think that's a very good thing. That actually, if we're teaching um, children and young people much more proactively about what is an appropriate way to engage with the opposite sex, what is an appropriate relationship what's a relationship to be, um, you know, the signs of something that, you know, might be a relationship might be abusive and all those, these sorts of things. Actually, that's going to hopefully educate our young people to um, act in a way which is, you know, much more responsible and which hopefully ensures that less of these things happen. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Um, we'll speak thank again you. next week.